We've, uh, we've done a couple hops and skips. On June 2nd, we uh, broke open this topic of Pentecost. And then we, uh, Michael Zarenko shared an amazing uh, message out of John 4. And then we had Father's Day. And now we're going to revisit this topic of Pentecost. And uh, those of you who haven't been here, you're going to have to grab the, uh, listen to the MP3s in order to catch up with us. We don't have time this morning to go through and do all that. But basically, what we're talking about this season of Pentecost, it's a season of the church in the uh, in May and June where we celebrate the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In March, April, and May, we celebrate Passover. Passover is when uh, when we celebrate the salvation of the believer, the justification as the Scriptures talk about. When Jesus came and He saved us, we were born again by the Spirit of God. But being saved is not just adequate. It's not the only thing there is. And unfortunately, a lot of believers, they get to that point of just being saved and then they stop right there. They settle for just the life of the uh, unempowered believer. And so in there's different times throughout the Gospels where Jesus is foreshadowing. He's talking about the power that is coming, the promise that is coming, the counselor, the one who's going to be there for you through thick and thin, because I'm going away, Jesus said, to be with the Father, and I'm sending Holy Spirit. And so we looked at that in Acts chapter 2, and we saw that Holy Spirit came down. People were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were set on fire, not literally, but passionately in their hearts. They were set on fire. They were baptized by fire. And this was the ignition point of the church as we know it today. However, the church looks quite a bit different in a lot of ways when we're talking about the overall church. And uh, so we want to get into some of this. Jesus as we've noted, is not exactly the seeker-sensitive one uh, trying to attract followers. He actually did quite a bit to repel followers, to weed out those who weren't really serious, that weren't really committed. Now, Holy Spirit, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, help us to see what we need to see. And we, again, acknowledge, recognize the only way we get revelation is by you, Holy Spirit, and so ask you to breathe on your word and uh, that I would say only what you're saying in Jesus name. Amen. But he was he would do crazy things like talk about drinking his blood and eating his body. And he talked about your mother, father, brother is going to hate you as a result of following me potentially. And he also promised suffering. And that doesn't preach really well in the Western world where so much of our health care and everything is geared around avoiding any type of suffering or inconvenience or anything like that. How one enters into something determines their level of sacrifice. 
How you come into something. In other words, the sales pitch that you receive on the front end of whatever you come into determines your expectation about how you're going to live your life in whatever it is that you've just entered into. So how does that affect Christians? Hey, come to Jesus. He's going to take all your problems away. And so we come to Jesus for the Savior part of it, but we don't come to Jesus for the Lord part. We could do without that. I've, I've been involved in sports all my life, high school, college, different things. And I've never had a coach tell me, hey, we're here for you. We're here for you. You come in, you sacrifice to the level that you want to, and we'll work with whatever, whatever sacrifice you're comfortable with. How's that going to fly in the Marines? We're here for you. We're, gonna, we're here to meet your needs. We're laughing, but we don't apply the same thought pattern to our life in terms of following Jesus. Marines volunteer for their pain. <laughs> they have a pretty good idea up front what they're signing up for, and they do it willingly and gladly because they want to play at a high level. Once you sign the dotted line, the U.S. Navy sends you into training with intense discipleship. Commanders that don't ask you if you'd like to do things. They don't make suggestions. But how do we run this thing called the Army of God that's volunteer as well? And yet, we don't want to take direction from anybody because it's just me and Jesus. U.S. Navy, they give you the mission, but they empower you for the mission. And that's what we're talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit. But in the kingdom of God, we call people to a very watered-down, self-centered version that leaves us void of any type of idea of difficulty, challenges, suffering, pain. And then when we finally get in and we start to live the Christian life, we're going, I didn't sign up for this. I did not sign up for this. It seemed a lot better. And of course, that's why the children of Israel, when they got out into the promised land, first it was the wilderness, then the promised land, what, were their, what was their mantra? I want to go back to Egypt. It was so much better there. And of course, it was horrible there. They were slaves. They didn't have their freedom, anything. But God had to bring them through a boot camp to get their expectations correct so that they understood where He was going and that they would be willing to follow Him where He would lead. So as a result of baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' followers would now start doing what Jesus had demonstrated all along. So He's telling them, you guys, come follow Me. Let's do this. We've got to understand that we, there was a few practice runs that they would make, but they never fully stepped into that until Acts 2, Holy Spirit comes, falls on them, and they are baptized, and they are empowered to do the work that Jesus had been demonstrating all along. This was mission impossible. What was it that Jesus called? So in Acts 2, what was He calling? Or excuse me, Acts 1.8. What was that again? 
and the Holy Spirit will what? Come upon you in... And you will be My... Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so He was empowering them for what? What happened in Matthew 28, 18-20? Great commission. So this was the power to do what was impossible for them to do. Apart from Holy Spirit. Go, make disciples. Teach them all that I've commanded you to obey. And I'm with you to the end. And it was on. So without, Max, without Acts 1.8 and Acts 2, Matthew 28 could never be fulfilled. And in Acts 1.8, we touched on, we highlighted just a little bit uh, here, this word witness. And you will be my witness or my witnesses. And this word in the Greek is martus. Sounds a lot like what? Sounds a lot like martyr. This word witness means... In the Greek lexicon, it's, it describes the eyewitness. One who had first-hand evidence of the life-changing power of Jesus. Now, that was the apostles at that time. How many of us have first-hand eyewitness, an account, an ability of what Jesus has done in terms of life-changing? Anyone here? If you're born again... And you're living the life that Jesus called you to live or He's living His life through you. Every hand in here should be raised. Because you are a first-hand account witness of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. One who is able to witness and say, that's right, it's happened to me. Here we go. It goes on to say in the Greek's lexicon of this word in Strong's, it says it's a designation of those who suffered death confessing Christ. The example they give is Stephen. But it should not be understood as if their witness consisted in their suffering death, but that their witnessing of Jesus became the cause of their death. See, Christians very different than what some might think. We're not jihadists. We're not out there seeking death in order to gain something, but it happens at times as a result of our witnessing for Jesus Christ. So in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we see our own Lord and Savior. Jesus, He says, the Holy Spirit has come upon me. And He quotes Isaiah 61. And He says, he, it says there in Luke 4, He says, it was, He was full of the Spirit. And then He came out of the wilderness filled with the Spirit. And He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Proclaim that captives will be released. That the blind will see the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now for Jesus, there was a serious price tag associated with embodying this message. It sounds really good and we get excited about that. Yes, set people free, blind eyes open. This is awesome. This is going to be so cool. But after He finished, they were all in awe. They were like, whoa! Amazing words. And then immediately right after, there's the shift and they try to kill him. And then he does this disappearing act. The price tag associated with this message. Do I look like the one that I claim to follow? Do Christians look like what they are talking about? Are we authentic 
and that we represent Him clearly. William Temple, Archbishop in the 1940s, he said this about Christ-likeness. You see, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I cannot. And it is no good showing me a life like Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I cannot. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like this. And if the Spirit of Jesus could come into me, then I could live a life like His. Come on, this is not about, I'm going to live for you, Jesus. I'm going to do this thing. Impossible. It won't ever happen. But the Spirit of God, through His power, coming and living in us and through us. If we could grasp that and we could walk in that revelation, it will absolutely change your life. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me and through me. We get excited about stuff like Mark 16. Go to Mark 16. I don't know. I do. Of course, maybe some of you don't know what we're about to read. Nobody's signing up yet, right? Tell me first, and then I'll let you know. This is the very end. So this is kind of a Matthew 28 type of a send-off. Jesus is about to ascend. This is Mark's version in his Gospel. And he says, and then he told them, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone everywhere. So far, so good. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. How many believers do we have in here? Stand up real quick. Okay. These signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons. So pull out your calendar. Put it down for this week. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak new languages. Got any funny, funky talking people in here? Tongue talking people? They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. Don't put that on the calendar. (laughs) They will be able to place their hands on the sick and heal them. You may be seated. I say that from the standpoint, what is following and accompanying us? If this was normal stuff that Jesus was saying would accompany them, then what does that say about me? I'm just checking my activity, checking my calendar. So we get excited about things like this, and and it's important because it's all part of the picture. But there's another side that helps us understand what our Lord is leading us into. There were certain things, you know, about... There's certain peculiar, quirky things about everyone's family. You know, you marry into a family. Sometimes you don't find out about the family till after the fact. You know, it's like, if I'd have known this... I may not have uh, gotten into it. You know what I'm saying? You guys are being real quiet because you don't want to admit it, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, my family, my wife's family. Uh, those family traits. John 15. 
John 15. I'm going to quote the leader of our movement, Jesus Christ himself. John 15, 18 through 20. When the world hates you, remember it hated me before it hated you. The world would love you if you belonged to it, but you don't. But you don't. You don't belong to it. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. There's a natural progression here. Again, leader of the movement. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. The people of the world will hate you because you belong to me. They didn't know God who sent me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 15. So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children adopted into His family. Come on, isn't that great? Calling them Father, dear Father. Everybody's on board right now. Because we haven't read the next couple verses. Everybody's like, yes, Abba. And we totally get excited about that. And we should. For His Holy Spirit speak to us, speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we're God's children. And since we are His children, we share His treasures. Yay! Everybody's holding out their hands going, gimme, gimme, gimme. For everything God gives to His Son, Christ is ours too. Mm. Man, I wish He'd left this last part out. But if we're to share, if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. This stuff preaches really well in China. Preaches really well in North Africa. People are totally down with it. You try and rock this in the Western world, people are just like, I just can't relate. Get a hold of that. For to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. There's people who live in a constant state of dependence upon the Lord. I want to read you a story about this type of person. They can also be identified by their reverence toward God's Word and their devoted attempts to be channels of His truth. Six weeks after the terrorist attacks in America, Muslim terrorists interrupted a church service in Pakistan. Three gunmen entered through the back of the building. One of them charged up to the pulpit and ordered the pastor to throw his Bible to the ground. Emmanuel, the pastor, clutched his Bible to his heart, turned his back on the terrorists, and said, I will not. To the horror To the horror of the congregation, the terrorists shot him in the back. 
as Pastor Emmanuel's wife and children looked on. The Pakistani minister was not, only, was not the only victim that day. The terrorists in the attack killed several others. Some might wonder why Pastor Emmanuel didn't comply with the terrorist demands to drop his Bible. Throwing a Bible to the ground might have been viewed as a personal violation of honor. But it would not have been sin. Pastor Emmanuel, he knew what such an act would symbolize to a radical Muslim attacker. Muslims consider any disrespect to the Quran to be blasphemous. So they would probably view throwing a Bible to the floor to be a rejection of Christianity. In their minds, such an act would convey that the Bible is not really the holy truth of God Christians proclaim it to be. After I read this story a year or so ago, I could never do what I once did with my Bible. No doubt Pastor Emmanuel could have complied with the order and thrown down the Bible knowing that he, had, he could explain to everyone later that Christians don't have, don't have the same ideas about the Bible as Muslims do about the Quran. But who's to say the terrorists wouldn't have made further demands of him and then shot him anyway? Even if they wouldn't have shot him, those who knew Pastor Emmanuel believed that he would not have dropped the Bible. He refused to obey the command because he could not imagine his last act on earth being a disgrace. To what was so precious to him. He loved God's Word enough to make eternally sure no one would ever misunderstand his commitment to it. What do you think you would have done in a similar situation? Are you that devoted to God's Word? Such a devotion to the Scriptures is rare in the United States where the average home has multiple copies on coffee tables, bookshelves, and nightstands. Western believers enjoy Bibles in scores of varieties, Several translations, every size, color, and binding. We have Bibles for children, kids, teens, mothers and fathers, study Bibles, devotional Bibles, and many other selections. Older Christians can boast of owning a dozen or more copies. Perhaps that's why we find it easy to take the Bible for granted. In a country like Pakistan, however, when the Bibles are scarce, Christians cherish the Scriptures as a priceless possession. In countries where owning it is outlawed, the Bible's sacredness is heightened. For those who risk arrest or injury in order to protect a copy, every copy is treasured. A Korean believer shared this. They begged and begged me. They're telling this story. They begged and begged me, but I couldn't give it to them. I know Christians are supposed to share, but I just couldn't part with it. And then he, hand out, he held out his hand and he revealing his prized possession. I really wanted to do it, but I couldn't, the man continued. You see, people in North Korea told me that they had been praying for 50 years to get a Bible, but I didn't give them mine because I had been praying for 20 years. And I had just gotten it from a pastor in South Korea. The man hugged his Bible to his chest. He had just escaped the communist prison state and was now living freely in South Korea. Despite the fact that fervent respect for God's Word is not as discernible among Christians in North America as it is in Muslim countries or Eastern Bloc nations, don't be misled. Many in the West take the Bible seriously and as a result are ostracized in cities or towns where steeples and crosses dot the skyline. Or to put it more succinctly, Christians are persecuted in places where the prominent religious faith is Christianity.
do we know what Jesus was actually saying in any given context in terms of directions that he was giving? We know what he was saying. If there's any confusion, we know what he was saying by what the hearers did with what they heard. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The U.S. State Department identifies more than 60 countries around the globe where Christians face active, often violent persecution for their governments and or fellow citizens solely because of their professed faith in Jesus. Reports that are confirmed Reports are confirmed by numerous evangelical monitoring reports and groups. Just last spring, a team, we went to North Africa. We had the opportunity to meet with uh, a Christian there. I think he told us that he knew roughly six Christians in the entire nation. It was when we were there, I think when we got back to England, I heard a report that Syria was asking Muslim nations to up the standards to not allow Christianity to flourish and they began to crack down on Christians in those different nations. The man that we met with, we couldn't meet with him, you know, in a just a, in, in an open way of, hey, how's it going, you know, brother, Christian, and all this kind of stuff. We met with him secretly in a cafe. A church in Asia somewhere, it's not told exactly where. This is from a story from the book Radical. These people that David Platt was meeting with, they said, some of the people in my church have pulled away, have been pulled away by a cult. This particular cult is known for kidnapping believers, taking them to isolated locations and torturing them. Brothers and sisters having their tongues cut out of their mouths is not uncommon. This pastor, this woman this, who pastors this local church, She says, I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up. Some of the members in my church were recently confronted by government officials. They threatened them, telling them that they had to stop gathering to study the Bible. They were going to lose everything that they had. She asked for prayer, saying, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. I looked around the room and I saw that everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by my brother, by this brother and sister, were not isolated. They all looked around at one another. We need to pray. Immediately they went to their knees and with their faces on the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to You and for You. Jesus, we trust in You. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After about an hour, the room drew to a silence. 
And they rose from the floor, humbled by what I had just been a part of. I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. Of course, the paradox in church history has been proven over and over again through the, through the centuries that the body of Christ often flourishes in these types of conditions. How many Christians are killed for their faith in a given year? According to the World Evangelical Alliance, over 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. A 2009 report in the International Bulletin of Missionary Research estimated that approximately 176 Christians were martyred from mid-2008 to mid-2009. 176,000. How many of those did you hear about? This, according to the report, compared, compares to 160,000 martyrs in the mid-2000s and 34,400 in the early 1900s. So in the 2000s, you have 160,000 in the 1900s 34,000. If current trends continue, they project it's estimated by 2025 an average of 210,000 Christians will be martyred annually. Acts 14:22. Here we see Paul and Silas, they go back. Paul and Silas go back to all the cities that they had just been threatened and physically attacked in. They go back to these cities and they say to the church there, they say, continue in the faith. You must enter into the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Holy Spirit is our trainer. Changing our perspective, filling us with courage. What would be the result of Holy Spirit filling Jesus' closest followers? All but one would be martyred for refusing to keep a private faith and for preaching this one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody died for preaching the death of Jesus Christ. Everybody dies. The one demarcation point that identified them and that cost them their life that they refused to recant was the resurrection life of Jesus. Why? Because they were firsthand witnesses. They had experienced they didn't have just some intellectual knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus. They experienced it. No man or woman would die for something that they didn't completely believe in. They had nothing to gain by promoting Christ. Here's his closest followers. James, the Apostle James, beheaded. 
Peter crucified upside down, Andrew crucified or hung, Thomas impaled with spears and burned alive, Philip crucified, Matthew beheaded, Nathaniel skinned and crucified. He refused to recant. He was one of the first to identify Jesus as the Son of God. James the Lesser was thrown from the top of the temple in Jerusalem and beaten with clubs. He refused to recant. Simon the Zealot, crucified, zealously preached the resurrection of Jesus throughout Africa, Britain, and the Middle East. Judas Thaddeus, beaten with sticks. Matthias, the one who took the place of Judas, was stoned while hanging on a cross. He came late to the game. John, he died of old age, but he lived a martyr's life in exile, rumored to have survived scalding oil torture. Paul, of course, his own testimony, labors more abundant in beatings above measure, in prisons more frequent, five times received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. He was eventually beheaded. In Vegas, these are not good odds. in terms of being filled, led by Holy Spirit, because I look at what happened to men and women throughout history who were filled, who were led by Holy Spirit, and you look at what happened, and I'm not saying all of them, and I'm not suggesting we go out on a crusade and we start looking for this kind of stuff. But if we understand what we've been called into, what we've been saved out of and the mission that we have and our expectations are set properly, then self-preservation will not continually take us over as Western Christians who really don't, we don't understand. I'm telling myself, I don't have a clue what is going on in the rest of the world. Paul is 100% convinced of this equation. Check his math in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. That's right. He said, will be persecuted. You get that? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why is Acts? Why is Pentecost? Why, you know, we celebrate this season. Yes, the power. But the power for what? Holy Spirit is infusing and filling Christians around the world to embrace suffering. To endure those things. And they count it a joy to be able to do so for their Savior. To follow in His footsteps. And it's not all about being tortured. There are many people, my own father, who just this last year went through severe suffering. But what Jesus is talking about here, and He did that as, as Holy Spirit through Him, but what He's talking about is, is being persecuted for my sake. Where do we line up with that? How, why did we sign up for this thing? How did we get into this group? 
this owner's manual has some, some things in it that I don't want to hear. Pentecost is where the whole idea of love God, love people, took off, caught fire, began to change the world. Is my version or my flavor of Christianity, of what I think it is, is it doing anybody any good? Is it changing anyone? It's through the Holy Spirit that the followers of Christ became Jesus with skin on. And again, don't don't mistake for a moment that I'm talking about pursuing persecution or that I hope for it or anything like that. I don't. But we all know that some of what of the reality that we live in is not reality according to the scriptures. Jesus' invitations, and we'll conclude with this, Jesus' invitations to potential followers were clearly more costly than crowds were willing to accept. Jesus was okay with that. We must be as well. He focused on those who would believe Him and act on what He said. The last thing we want to do is show up for a church service and just to feel good about what we're doing. Nobody's doing anyone any type of a service by doing that. That is the last thing we want. I didn't sign up to, to you know, play sports and do these different things. That's why I love those things because it, 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 sports is kind of like a reality check. I didn't sign up for those things to feel good about myself. I signed up for it to lay it all on the field, to lay it all on the line, to be willing. Those who are willing to give up everything for Jesus will never, ever be disappointed. You will never be disappointed. That is gospel truth. His goal, Jesus' goal, was not to big, build mega churches. And we'll never be a mega church preaching messages like this. His goal was to restore his lost sons and daughters to his Father and accomplish this through Holy Spirit who lives in a few committed followers. I just want to read something in conclusion here. Those with an eternal perspective know the truth. That this life is not all there is, and they live that truth. Though burdened and beaten, they live with hope and joy. With antennas tuned to God's frequency, they hear His strong message and they live accordingly. Struggles and pain can cloud our vision, causing us to lose perspective. That's when we're tempted to give up or give in. We must remember that when we lose in this world, we are, when we are deserted, 
excuse me, and persecuted because of our faith, we win with the Lord. Stop for a moment and check your perspective. Where are you looking? To whom are you listening? There was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everyone danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care if they are considered insane. Would you close your eyes and just listen to the rest of this? That's exactly the image the writer to the Hebrews painted when he defined faith. The very first chapter, the very first verse of chapter 11 asserts that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Or as Eugene Peterson put in the message, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. Ah, We come from a long line of God-trusters. Our spiritual ancestors consistently took their cues from a future that was only hinted at. Their ability to anticipate what they could not see distinguished them as people of faith. But it was their determination to factor the promises of eternity into their daily decisions that qualified them as heroic. Come on, stay with me. Those listed in Hebrews 11 actually acted as if the future were here, even though they were only able to visualize ultimate rewards, guaranteed victory, and complete salvation in their minds. What was the true? What was true of those whose portraits are hung in the Hebrews gallery of the faithful is also true of Jesus. Most everybody knows that the chapter divisions in the Bible were, in, were not inspired. They're simply mileposts in the text that ancient editors inserted in there to attempt to break up the visual. We're told that our Lord maintained His momentum of obedience despite a myriad, myriad of obstacles. We are also told how He was able to do that. It was because of His eternal perspective. Just as we close, can we take a moment just to sit here quietly? And I just want us to think, rather than just get up and go and go on our day, I want you to think and consider what Holy Spirit might be saying to you this morning.
we seek a nice, quiet, comfortable life, we need to stay away from Jesus. We need to resist Holy Spirit with everything that is within us. But if we allow Him to fill us and live His life through us, we will never be disappointed. Ever. Maybe a set of us in not some attempt to be poetic, but that we would leave it all on the field. When it's all said and done, we gave all we had.